Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to New Books in Psychoanalysis. This is Philip Lance, your host for today's episode. I'm an analyst in training at the Psychoanalytic Center of California, and today I'm interviewing Dr. Lewis Kirshner about his book, Intersubjectivity in Psychoanalysis, a model for theory and practice, published by Rutledge in 2017. Dr. Kirshner has worked as a Harvard professor and training psychoanalyst in Boston, and has been visiting professor in Lyon, France, and a Fulbright Senior Fellow in Ghent, Belgium. His numerous publications have treated developments in French psychoanalysis and the work of Lacan, Winnicott, and Ferenczi. His book, Having a Life, Self-Pathology After Lacan, was published in 2004, and he edited an anthology titled Between Winnicott and Lacan, A Clinical Engagement, published in 2014. Welcome to the program, Dr. Kirshner. Thank you. Glad to be here. And let's just start with telling us about what led you to putting this book project together. Well, uh, I had been interested over the years, last five to ten years, in this particular subject, and I was enjoying reading about it, and uh, after my edited book came out, I was sort of thinking about what direction I was going to go in and thought of writing an article, and gradually I I realized I had um, enough interdisciplinary interest that I could try to put together a book treating the concept of intersubjectivity in a broad way and trying to argue for its role, important role in psychoanalysis. Okay, so so the last five or ten years, you've had a, a special interest in intersubjectivity. What was, where were you before yeah. that? Well, I think okay. this has been part, you know, I think the people I was very interested in for a long time, Arnold Modell, a teacher of mine from Boston, certainly could be considered an early intersubjective thinker. Um, and uh, Jacques Lacan, as you mentioned, I'd done a lot of work on French psychoanalysis and Lacanian thought in particular. And of course, uh, as I discuss in the book, he was really the first analyst to make intersubjectivity a very central part of the theory. Uh, so uh, I, I think my interests were evolving in that direction. Yeah. But I was interested in also in the, the trying to integrate sort of a Lacanian structural linguistic approach with a more personal, more traditional psychoanalytic approach. So these ideas were swimming around for a while. Okay. And you mentioned inter- interdisciplinarity and a broad approach. Would you say this book is 
is a broad interdisciplinary approach to subjectivity, I, or how I would you describe? So. I hope it is. I mean, I I have the, I happen to have this curiosity and interest in looking to see what people in our neighboring disciplines have to say about the subjects that we as analysts are interested in, specifically disciplines like phenomenology, neuroscience, infant research, semiotics. And a lot of the people that are working in these areas cross paths in various ways. So it kind of made sense for me to try to sort out, you know, what does this intersubjectivity, something that has a common meaning across these disciplines, can we work out kind of a more core definition of what it is? So those were questions on my mind when I started the book, which was over about three years ago, actually. Yeah, it begins to show us what a broad sort of thing intersubjectivity is when we're bringing in neuroscience and infant research and philosophy. And, um, but, but then we could also go in the direction of the different schools of psychoanalysis um, and how, how, how we begin to look at them as intersubjective models or not. Um, so anyway, I can see how we get there's a broad territory we're beginning to look at. Mm -hmm. um, maybe you could tell us a little about um, the overall sort of organization of the book, what what it looks like in terms of its chapters and what it covers. And so the um, I try to give an overview in the introduction. It's a kind of a diverse kind of book. I wouldn't say it's tightly integrated. But I hope that uh, by having a clinical uh, orientation throughout, uh, especially not in every chapter, but pretty much as I go along, I try to use clinical examples, I can kind of weave together these very abstract concepts with what uh, psychoanalysts do and their practices. Uh, so there's a, a substantial chapter in the book that talks about what intersubjectivity means to the various disciplines. And that's maybe the naughtiest chapter and maybe the one that um, I f is the most difficult and maybe uh, the one I'm the least satisfied with. But I think I covered a lot of territory. I think it's an interesting chapter. And then I um, want to take up the concept, the, the role, the place of affect and emotion and intersubjectivity. And so I, I do a rather lengthy review uh, I've always been interested in how psychoanalysis understands affect. And um, as you may know, Lacan was, is famous for having supposedly disparaged affect or dismissed affect as an important part of psychoanalysis. That's a point I challenged in my 2004 book. Um, and some of the ideas from that book recur in my discussion of affect, but I tried to bring myself more up to date about emotion and affect research. And um, I have a perspective um, on these topics that is skeptical of uh, reductionistic approaches, which seem to be gaining ground both in psychiatry and psychoanalysis and in neurosciences, that is, um, thinking you can uh, explain something like emotion once you understand the 
uh, biology of emotion and the connection between human emotion and other mammalian emotion and areas that have been really important avenues of research in the last 10 or 15 years, but sometimes um, end up slighting the uh, importance of emotion for communication and the way that emotion gets subjectivized and it becomes a, a personal expression, not just a discharge of one of the core feelings from the midbrain. So I try to discuss controversies that have come up around that. And there's quite a bit. I mean, of course, if you go very deeply into any area of theory, you find everything is contested. And uh, I try to review what some of those contested issues are for affect. So that was an important chapter. And I try to give some clinical examples of how affect plays a role in some of my own work. And uh, then, uh, of course, I, as you mentioned, the different theoretical schools. I, I don't mention all the schools, of course, but I do discuss how intersubjectivity has grown and played an increasing role in several schools in North American psychoanalysis. There's an intersubjective psychoanalysis that Robert Stolero and his colleagues developed. And there, there are other important contributions, especially in the relational movement by Jessica Benjamin and Lewis Aaron. And there are others. So I try to review those. And then I take on some more um, of the issues that I, I think are very central to understanding intersubjectivity. That would include semiotics. And I try to have a chapter reviewing what that means and how it works for psychoanalysis. There have been important contributions in that area already. I, Bonnie Litowitz has contributed important articles in that, in that regard, Janine Vivone, and there are others that I cite. And finally, uh, well, I take on an old chestnut, which is, you know, the comparison of a human speaking subject to a text, uh, the analogy to a text which was a big issue maybe 40 years ago. And I kind of revisit it because I think it has some interesting facets to think about. It interests me anyway. And then in the end, I try to uh, present a level that I call beyond semiosis. We can talk about that later, but it has to do with levels of uh, conception of interaction that are you might say, more holistic than the semiotic approach, which tends to get fragmented into how we study the uh, expression and reading of diverse kinds of signs, especially by human beings. So that's a mouthful. So that kind of covers the book. And along the way, there are a lot of, as I say, clinical vignettes, examples, extended cases, and so on that I hope are there, they're there mainly to illustrate what I mean and how I think about intersubjectivity. Uh -huh. Yeah, I felt like the earlier parts of the book, um, I'm hearing myself echoing right now and it's kind of bothering me, but I'll try to speak over my own voice. But I felt like the earlier parts of the books were almost reference-like in some ways of, of 
terrific literature reviews. It's something I'll want to go back to whenever I'm, if I'm ever writing something about intersubjectivity. But as the book went on, I felt like you started adding in more and more your own way you work with intersubjectivity and practice. And then there were some, I felt like really original contributions, especially what you mentioned beyond semiosis. I'd like to get back to that um, if we have a chance. But let's begin more more basically, because I don't know who really the listeners are to New Books in Psychoanalysis. Apparently, there's, I think, for, from what I can pick up, there's a broad range of people who are I'm real sure. beginners uh-huh. to understand. Yeah, and and they're all over the map. So maybe we can try to speak to all audiences and start with a really simple um, uh, questions, uh, such as, <laughs> you, okay, you just wrote a book about this, but can you sort of boil down what is intersubjectivity in, in really yeah. simple terms? Right, so I hope I haven't scared everyone off already by my, <laughs> my convoluted answers. Uh, you know, I mean, intersubjectivity, how is it different from just interpersonal relation, relatedness or relations. Um, so you could say it's it's a kind of a refinement of the interpersonal concept, uh, focusing on what goes on in the interaction between persons. And uh, intersubjectivity uh, talks about the interaction between two subjects. So it gets into more theoretical and clinical issues of how do we think of what a subject is? You know, when we think of what a person is, we tend to have a somewhat sociological idea of an individual who's fairly, in general, a discrete agent who has a particular set of qualities and, or we might say of a character or personality and how he impacts others and they impact him or her. And that's certainly true, but, um, when we look at sort of contemporary psychoanalytic theories of subjectivity and what it means to be a subject, then we get into more complicated ways of viewing what a person is. And we, we tend to question the idea that people are so coherent and cohesive that they have a kind of an identity that can be defined or they have a personality that can be characterized usefully in in the individual context. Uh, and there we look at it, subjectivity as a more uh, fluctuating um, set of different positions that uh, a person moves across depending on the context they're operating in, especially the interpersonal or intersubjective context. So, um, it's a, you might say it offers a more contemporary post, you could say postmodern, although that's already become a little bit, um, over, you know, overused and maybe bypassed now concept. But yeah, so, uh, but you'll see a lot of current psychoanalytic literature talking about subjectivity and different kinds of subjectivity, a lot of interesting discussions about that. And so intersubjectivity really is the theory of interaction, especially psychoanalytic interaction, since that's what we're talking about, that looks upon a human subject as a much more of an amalgam of different tendencies, uh, structures, roles, positions, not a, and someone in 
a moving shape, you know, over time. I hope that helps. Yeah. So, yeah, I, 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 I'm, I'm thinking myself. I'm always wondering. So when when we begin hearing theorists who are using the word subject as opposed to person, mm-hmm. I guess they're kind of beginning to work in this more contemporary idea. I, I'm trying to repeat, I guess, may, maybe what you said in my own words, but that that people are not these kind of self-contained. Um, Things, but that people are constituted by um, forces outside of themselves and are, are very much ongoing um, works in progress. <laughs> yeah, to things that are outside them, and that complicates what psychoanalysis is about. And so, um, so, so, so then thinking about how that idea begins to change the program of psychoanalysis. I think you talk about psycho, um, intersubjectivity and psychoanalysis as expanding our subjectivity. That, mm-hmm. So we're not trying to cure somebody or fix them necessarily, but there's something else going on. How do you talk about um, that aim of psychoanalysis in the intersubjective perspective? Right. So, uh, you know, I don't think it's, uh, I wouldn't say it's the only aim of psychoanalysis, but because uh, I think psychoanalysis is itself kind of an amalgam of different aspects. But um, the uh, uh, you know, for a long time, we've become uh, sensitized to the role of the analyst and the impact of the analyst on the patient. First, in terms of countertransference, and then in terms of uh, what the Argentinian analysts, the Beranger couple, talk about as the bipersonal field. And we have a whole explosion of field theories now that more or less look at that kind of phenomenon. So um, our interest in psychoanalysis has gradually shifted from figuring out what's going on, what the psychopathology is or the psychodynamics or whatever of a patient to thinking about what's going on between the analyst and the patient, what's happening in the session, uh, and how are we part of it? How are we shaping it? And uh, so we're looking more and more uh, in the present and the here and now, not to not in a disregard of the past, although I think that's one tendency in uh, American psychoanalysis to kind of minimize the past, but. Uh, if you view the past as emerging in different forms within the current interaction that either uh, elicits, facilitates, enables, you know, expressions of the person's own history in the current interaction, then, you know, you uh, really think of uh, the work as not, as, 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 as a way of, gaining access to a living past, how it comes to be in the current behavior and interaction of the patient in the context of the analysis. Of course, we hope that we believe, I think it depends. There are people that have a much more uh, kind of field-dependent view of subjectivity as uh, really very protean and almost infinitely malleable. And then there are other people that um, 
at the other end that would see the individual as a more stable configuration. I guess I'm kind of in the middle of that particular discussion. You know, I see the the individual subject is rather changing and fluctuating, but I also see that there's something that in general is has a historical persistence, uh, not as a thing, as you say, but as a set of important reference points that um, kind of mark the boundaries of that particular subject. Um, although how far they mark them and how much they're subject to change, I guess we're we're kind of learning that as we move into this um, era where very few rigid boundaries of what constitutes, uh, you know, our idea of how a person should function as a gender, as a person carrying aggression or drive forces, ability to relate, to belong to a group. All these things seem to be under a lot of rapid kind of process of change. Yeah, yeah, and maybe this is a slight digression from where I thought I was going to go, but it's making me think about how training works, since I'm in training myself as a candidate. And, you know, the, and as I'm thinking about this kind of move in psychoanalysis from, could we say, the focus on the intrapsychic to the more and more to intersubjective ways of understanding what's happening in the consulting room. And yet my first two years of training have just been, and I love my institute, so I don't want to, you know, get in trouble by criticizing it, but pure, we're all we're reading is these really old school Freud and Klein and um, where, and so I thought in my, you know, it was hard for me being trained. Then I'm sitting with my clients constantly trying to discover the the object relation dynamics that are <clears throat> yeah, the hidden and and I I'm getting anxious because I you know I can't find them and as I've begun to study more intersubjective ways of looking at things like more Bionian field theory it's been quite a relief and I found enjoying so much more my work and it almost feels to me like training is is backwards that um, very new people to psychoanalysis we need to right away begin to introduce them to some of these more contemporary ideas. And and maybe then after they've got the grounded and they can go back and read these old papers. But what are you, what are you, any thoughts about That's training? That's very interesting. Well, uh, you have your finger on what's going on in training now. You know, uh, I, uh, you know, I think when I trained, it was like the way you say, not so much in object relations, but in reading, you know, classic papers, ego psychology, Freud. And uh, they're very interesting papers still. You know, they people had some insights into human beings. I mean, a lot of the theory is kind of defunct, you know. But um, there are still a lot of important insights about what goes on in analysis and analytic process in these papers. And it is our history. So I guess I have mixed feelings about it. I think we should know something about it. But uh, I do think that there's a, a deficit in training of thinking about what does the analyst actually do? What does analysis accomplish? And I think when I trained, we, we didn't really know exactly. We felt we were supposed to resolve neurotic conflicts. We were supposed to bring unconscious fantasies into consciousness and then interpret them. And since I was you know, not ever really doing that very well in my training. 
And I don't think anyone did it very well to me in my own experiences in analysis. I began to get disillusioned about that model. You know, you, you wait forever for things to emerge and take shape. You're afraid to say anything because you're going to influence the process of treatment. I think we were really, you know, throwing a curveball there that set analysis back a long way. And um, mm-hmm. I think we're still struggling with these ideas, you know. How, is it bad to be active as an analyst? What does it mean to be active? How do you, in what ways should you, can you be active? What are the effects of your activity? It's an interactive process. So if it's fundamentally that, how do we study that? How do we learn about that? And I try to talk about that a bit at the end of the book, but it really needs a whole study about training. Uh, I agree with you. And uh, hopefully, you know, you're, you know, I think now when cases are presented, there's a, I hope there's more attention to, well, what the, what the analyst, how the analyst presents the case illustrates their countertransference, you know, and we should be able to talk about that comfortably. It's nothing embarrassing, you know. You have to be in a, a situation of trust reasonably to uh, be able to undertake that kind of exploration. If you feel you're being judged in a class or you're going to look stupid, you know, you don't dare. But a class ought to strive for a kind of openness. And I think the instructor can model that. I, I've always said that um, this is going off on a little bit of a tangent, but maybe it's related. I think I don't know what it's like now for you. You're in a very good institute. But how often do the instructors present cases of their own that people discuss in the class and expose their work? Not nearly enough. And I think just doing that would demystify a lot of things for candidates, you know. It's not like the instructors have some wisdom where they know how to make these brilliant formulations and deliver them to the patient. Or if they think they can, usually the class is going to poke a lot of holes in it pretty rapidly, you know, because, you know, most people who are candidates have (laughs) enough experience to, you know, have some sense about, you know, how to look at possibilities of what's going on in their infinite lives, you know. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Well, thank you for letting me vent on that a little bit. I could pick up from your question on what do the instructors do, but I'm going to try to get back to to your book and to intersubjectivity, maybe 101, one last little question. Maybe it's not a little question, but um, when I first started reading, I read some ben- Jessica Benjamin several years ago, and within the first few paragraphs, there was something about Hegel, and um, I my sort of heart dropped, and I thought, oh my gosh, am I going to have to understand and study Hegel in, other, in order to read psychoanalysis? And so this, but then when reading your book, you you touch on the master, the famous, I guess, Hegel master-slave parable, and that comes up often in other discussions of intersubjectivity in other schools. And I'm still not sure I quite get that. And can you tell us how you, what your take is on what that parable means about intersubjectivity? Well, it's, it's become kind of a, a core kind of a set of images and metaphors for you know, a lot of things about human beings. And um, Jacques, Lacan was, Jacques Lacan was the first analyst as far as I know to make to make this into a part of his theory and to talk about it a lot and uh, then Arnold Modell in the in the United States talked about it and Jessica Benjamin of course wrote about it quite a bit 
And it comes out of, um, it's part of a philosophical tradition that tried to deal with what it means to use the word subject, what a subject is, what is the human subject. And um, Hegel's work was partly an extended parable about how a person becomes a subject or there's a historical process of becoming and so on. And it weaves its way into uh, phenomenology and modern philosophy. Um, and part of his thick book, you know, on um, uh, the, the um, phenomenology of the spirit, uh, spirit being kind of what you might call mind or soul or whatever, uh, metaphor of works for what we're, this idea. Uh, you know, he, he, he imagines a mythic encounter between two subjects <clears throat> and, uh, who, um, it's, it, it's, uh, it's a pure parable, it's, but some people draw some historical roots and meanings from it. <clears throat> uh, <clears throat> excuse me. So in this encounter, it's like one subject suddenly meets another one. And uh, Modell talks about this uh, very nicely, I think. Uh, you know, when there's an encounter between two subjects, there's always a threat. Um, this, this other subject can affirm you for who you want to be, can affirm your identity and sense of self, but they can also disaffirm it. They can disqualify you and they can cause uh, injury, hurt, or even maybe a, a more powerful effect of kind of destroying your sense of who you are as a subject, or at least reduce it to something lesser. And um, so that's an interesting idea in itself. And uh, it is kind of a metaphor for a lot of human interaction. I mean, it's not all love and sweetness and light. I mean, there's the other person's a threat as well as a possible source of love and reassurance and affirmation. So uh, how does that threat get negotiated? How does it get handled? Um, uh, I use the analogy I borrowed from somewhere uh, of if you've ever been hiking alone, uh, and I enjoy hiking, you know, and I, usually you're with somebody, but if you ever hike alone, have you ever sort of arrived at a point where you're looking out a vantage point at a beautiful vista and you're, you feel at one with the world, you feel very powerful and elated and expanded in some sort of um, basic you know, way. And then all of a sudden, a couple people noisily enter a scene right, you know, from the woods, from the trail. And all of a sudden, everything changes. They're seeing you, you're seeing them. They're intruding on you. You resent them. You're going to, all of a sudden, your sense of who you are shrinks a little bit. What are they going to think of you? Who are these hikers? What do you think of them? You, on the other hand, you might enjoy their presence and talk about it. It might shift into something different in a good way, but you don't initially usually welcome them. It changes the whole scene. And so that's kind of a pragmatic, um, to me, illustration of this kind of Hegelian encounter in a more benign form. And of course, Hegel thought uh, what he writes about is how one person, each person, each subject wants to get the other person to affirm them. 
So there's kind of a contest. Who's going to give in? And that's basically who's going to become the master? Who's going to become the other's slave? And because it's of all-important struggle in this confrontation, uh, with everything being at stake in the end, uh, there's a there's a threat of violence. There's a threat of it leading to a, con- a, a contest for life or death between the two people. Who's going to predominate and be the master? So Hegel imagines a whole sequence of things that happen. You know, one person gives in and becomes the slave to the other, and then the other person is installed as the master and so on. And um, But over time, of course, the master then realizes that he is dependent more and more on the slave to give him the affirmation he craves. The other person becomes more important, and the slave begins realizing that in working for the master, it has some power over the situation. So then there's a whole further set of steps. Anyway, this is kind of an outline of it. Jessica Benjamin deals with it beautifully, I think, in her first book. And um, Lacan talked about it in evocative ways before that. So um, if you have a philosophical imaginative curiosity, the parable might be appealing, you know. And but even at its most simple level, you know, how do you how do two subjects like an analyst and an analyzon deal with each other? How do they come to uh, not have a clash of power? Uh, how is the negative transference not predominate over the positive transference? You know, and a lot of times, uh, every analysis, you know, there's got to be some negative transference. The analyst has to be a bit of a threat, and it can be in the form of resistance. And the analyst may try to break the resistance. The analyst may perpetuate the resistance or the conflict. And it can go on a long time, years in some cases, you know. You know, you you may... That was very helpful to me. And it helps me, connects back to your idea about expanding subjectivity in other words, when we come into these encounters with the other and sometimes problematic authoritarian ones, a master and a slave, how we work through that together, um, the problems that come up in that that encounter then um, can lead to a lot of growth, uh, I guess, in both parties, but uh, so. hopefully especially the patient. So let's kind of move on a little bit because early on you talked about, you mentioned infant research. Mm-hmm. Um, neuroscience. And, you know, I was, I, my institute talks a lot about infant observation, but they, they never used, I very, at least in my, so far in seminars, the word intersubjectivity doesn't come up. Infant observation is very much about, I guess, trying to sort of see the object relations that are developing between the infant and its mother. Um, So it's kind of that focus on infant observation. But you um, reference it as an important, uh, informative uh, method or practice to to intersubjectivity. Can you say how? Yeah. Well, we, you know, at my institute about fifteen years ago, uh, um, when Daniel Stern was alive and working, maybe it was more than fifteen. I don't know. We had a program where we called it uh, the psychoanalytic infant, and we had five people present the view of infancy from their own particular school, Kleinian school, Freudian school, 
relational school, Lacanian school. It was almost humorous, you know, how different everybody had their own infant, that, which is their imaginary infant, which is how your ideas, the images you have from your theory about how people are, organize your perception and understanding. And, um, but, you know, I think the, uh, I'm surprised that you haven't heard that term because one of the nicest books about intersubjectivity is Beatrice Beebe and her group's book called Forms of Intersubjectivity. She's an infant researcher. Um, you, uh, I mean, the, one of the sources of the term intersubjectivity comes from, uh, infant research, comes from, um, uh, Colin Trevarthen. This is, I don't know, 20 years ago or more. And he talked about what goes on between the infant and the mother as an example of what he called primary intersubjectivity. Uh, and maybe he adopted the term from philosophy, from phenomenology, I'm not sure. But um, what he talked about was that the interaction between infant and mother is uh, not just like a, the Freudian infant having drives and survival instincts and attachment, you know, not attachment, but uh, need satisfaction and pleasure from sucking and so on. Or the Kleinian one where these fantasies of incorporation and expulsion and projection, but that um, the infant and the mother represent two subjects and they're communicating with each other. They're negotiating. They're trying to work out a relationship that was, uh, I think, Trevarthen's very uh, groundbreaking perception. And I think that work of theorists like Daniel Stern, Beatrice Beebe, uh, work pursued uh, the development of those kind of ideas of Trevarthen. Of course, different inner uh, infant researchers use the concept of intersubjectivity differently. Uh, it's interpreted a bit differently. But um, but still, it, it, I think it uh, has become a very important idea that the infant is an active agent shaping the encounter. And then that has begun to be applied increasingly to the analytic encounter. The Boston Process of Change group that I refer to a bit in my book, uh, that was Daniel Stern's group with Ed Tronic and Alex Harrison and others in the beginning, uh, they, you know, definitely took the findings of infant research in that respect and tried to apply them to the adult-to-adult -adult analytic interaction. Uh, and in the relational school, it's very prevalent that you hear those kind of analogies. So uh, it is. it has become an important source of um, ideas for uh, psychoanalysts to try to apply what they've learned from infant research. I mean, it maybe it's uh, maybe over applied in my view, or or it isn't to me a totally satisfactory model, but it's a useful heuristic or model for thinking about adult interaction. Yeah, so infant research definitely uh, has an important place in this whole. Uh, Panorama of intersubjectivity, yeah, and also, and uh, in a par yeah, go ahead. Yeah, I guess I, I was just yeah, we could go on because I, and 
And I could say more about, I guess at my institute, they're so experientially, they really send us out to do the infant observation and then to come back and talk about the experience. It's really not dealt with theoretically much at all, but but to the degree it is, it seems like it's the infant's experience with the mother, how that shapes the intrapsychic, the unconscious of the infant. So we're still in that old um, paradigm, uh, even though obviously the infant's mind is being shaped very much by how it's handled by the mother physically. And In every way, but voice of course, of the mother. when you observe the infant, you have re reactions, you know. And partly they're your own reactions, of course, but, you know, from your own history, but partly they're what you're reading in the infant, you know. And if you are interacting with the infant, the fact that you have certain reactions to them. I mean, if they're screaming... Uh, you might feel compassion. You might want to pick the infant up. You you might get frustrated and impatient. You know, you might have all kinds of different reactions. And clearly, the way you interact is either going to soothe the infant or modify the infant's behavior or get you into a worse impasse, just like with your own real infant, you know. I mean, you know, raising an infant, I mean, there are times where you are impatient and frustrated with the 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 creature. You just can't stand it. You're, you want to go back to sleep and you hate the kid. And, you know, and that doesn't work too well. It leads to, you know, maybe it's very hard to soothe a child when you're feeling all this rage back. You know, you have to kind of work out a different way. You use, And it isn't just a matter of physical techniques. You know, everything has its place. So, yeah, I think probably uh, maybe you could inflect the discussion in that respect, because I think a lot of uh, people do use infant research to um, teach some fundamentals of intersubjectivity. Because when you're trying to think what's going on in the infant's mind, well, there, you know, your guess is as good as mine. You know, Melanie Klein's guess is as good as Robert Stolaro's or Heinz Kohut or Arnold Modell or Andre Green. You know, you get a dozen theories. They're all very well articulated. And there are interesting ways to think about people, no doubt about that. They may be useful, but uh, don't think you've understood really what's going on in the mind of the infant or another person. That's how I I feel about those matters, you know. I think, I think you have to be careful with theory. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and uh, kind of illustrate how broad the territory is we're talking about. We go from infant research. I want to go to one of your final chapters where you talk about the, the patient as a text. So we're going from how babies and mommies are being together to this whole other idea of s how people, subjects can be looked at textually. And I, I really liked how you kind of uh, did a review there of that idea and uh, came up with sort of a qualified way of of looking at it. But do you want to say any more about how you handled that? Well, it, it's a subject that interested me. You know, it was a, a kind of a big issue a long time ago, maybe 30 or more years ago, especially in literary studies and in philosophy and part of structuralist theory, you know, that was the dominant paradigm back then. Uh, and uh, I, I enjoyed taking it up again and playing with it <clears throat> to think about um, uh, the structuralist idea that a person can be analogized to a text that they've been kind of uh, programmed in a certain way by their social 
milieu and the context they were raised in to, to, you know, emit certain kinds of answers and signifiers and identify with. It doesn't correspond to this actively changing, interacting idea of a subject. And um, so I wanted to play with that idea, uh, which was kind of part of my own history. And uh, I like the metaphor of uh, the, per- the person, you know, there's something textual about a person in that uh, we all have only a certain repertoire of uh, words and ideas, collections of words, references that we use when we think and speak. And uh, you could say those form a certain kind of text that we uh, that constitutes us, that, that, that uh, determines our self-expression. But at the same time, I, tr- I try to argue against that, that we're also open systems, that we're always incorporating new information. We're interacting with the people that we're um, communicating our textualized messages to, and we're changing. And I, I and so I talk about a text. This was a Lacanian kind of metaphor, a text that keeps being written. You know, uh, we're not a finished text. And sometimes I feel in psychoanalysis, more traditional psychoanalysis, we tend to think of the person as a as a written text, something that can be analyzed and we can see how it works. You know. So I like the idea of an open text that keeps evolving and changing. Things drop out, things get added. But it's a little bit, yeah, it's, it, it's a, for me, a kind of enjoyable chapter. And I know there are some people who I've had as readers who really like that, enjoyed playing with those ideas. Other people just skipped over it because it's, you know, very abstract and so on. Well, yeah, I somehow really liked, I felt like you dealt with it very unabstractly somehow. And I'll read a little line that I liked from that chapter. You said, rather than functioning as the reader of a text, the analyst might be more usefully viewed as supporting the conditions for an ongoing process of writing one. So not um, a reader of a text, but the analyst is helping the patient write one. Or yeah. So anyway, let's move on, though. That's a good thing. Or do you want to say it? And that gets along with my idea about how <clears throat> the the uh, function of the analyst that I highlight in this book, as I say, I don't think it's the sole function, but it's to help the patient to expand their subjectivity, to include more symbols and signs and images that constitute who they are. You could say to make more of the unconscious conscious, but um, but uh, it's really a question of expanding the the I, the the me, the the speaking part of the person, so that it incorporates more of their own history, more of their own feelings and wishes. And we know when we when we sit down with a patient the first time, we often get a narrative, we get a kind of a limited presentation of who the person is, we get some real, fairly rigid views about some of their relationships and some other feelings about important others and uh, and we hope that over time, um, those um, feelings and ideas are going to become much richer and deeper and more complicated so that their previous kind of uh, formulations about who they are and what's going on in their relationships grow. They become more diverse and the person has more options and choices for how they 
function, how they behave and interact. So that's kind of my message in a nutshell. Yeah. Uh huh. And I, you know, I don't think we're going to get to the discussion about beyond semiotics, which is in chapter eight. But I'll just say I, I found that really, although it sounds abstract, beyond semiotics, it was actually a really grounding kind of chapter where we came back to what it's like being, to being and what how. Yeah. Well, you With asked it. me a question about that, and how is it different, and what I think is that, you know, semiotics is the correct way to understand human interaction. But it's hard to grasp the concept of a subject, of a per, of a whole subject, whole in quotes, you know, of an interacting subject, a human being, just in the details of semiotics. I think we need concepts that are broader. And I try to talk about that in that chapter. That's really where I should, you know, really what needs to be developed if I continue to develop in that direction. Okay, and then um, what are you working on in terms of uh, maybe another book? Yeah, so, uh, yeah, I've been very interested in this question of consciousness and unconsciousness. What is the unconscious? And, of course, consciousness is very important, essential for psychoanalysis, and I think it's essential for being a subject and for being a speaking semiotic subject. So how to carry that a little further, you know, so I've been reading more about what, you know, in terms of my interdisciplinary interests, especially in current phenomenology and cognitive science, how do they think about consciousness? And why don't they incorporate our psychoanalytic experience of the unconscious? Well, it's partly because we're pretty confused and we're using an amalgam of ideas, some way out of date, some, you know, so that it needs an update. So that a lot of people are working in that area, and that's where I'd like to go in the, in the future. So it's an extension, maybe of that last chapter. Uh huh. Well, okay, we're out of time, and so um, thank you very much for taking the time to talk to us about your book. Which, um, uh, and so let me tell the listeners, you've been listening to an interview with Lewis Kirshner about his book. Let me go back to the title, Intersubjectivity and Psychoanalysis, a Model for Theory and Practice. Here at the New Books and Psychoanalysis podcast show, be sure to subscribe to our podcast and visit our website where you can find dozens and dozens of interviews from the past. And feel free to email me with your comments and questions. So thank you again, Dr. Kirshner. Oh, you're very welcome. It's been and thank a good experience. You know, we covered a lot of territory. <laughs> and thanks everybody for listening bye bye